Let me read some passages or a passage here from Second Peter three, and then we'll pray, and we'll begin our class. Second Peter three, starting with verse one. This now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our class this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters whose common ground is that we have been adopted into the family of God. We pray that we would see and understand and apply the word of God so that you might work graciously in our lives. In Jesus' holy name we ask, amen. Okay, there's a sheet here that Christy helped me with. I, I got these verses. Now, I realize this is, a, you might look at this and say, well, we got a concordance. What, why do we need a pastor or a teacher or anything? All we got to do is look this up in the concordance. Well, that's true for anybody and everybody, including the people that are, uh, are evangelical leaders, but they don't get it, okay? And what I'm trying to do, and the reason for giving you this, even though you probably have your own concordance, is that I want us to be impressed with the preponderance of repetition in the Bible in regard to the importance of remembering. And the reason I want us to see that is the basis for why means of grace are necessary and are taught in the New Testament. That's extremely important. I'm searching for ways to emphasize it more. Part of the reason we need to be so strong on this is the dearth of good teaching about means of grace in contemporary Christianity. So as we look at back at the passages we covered last week, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Notice twice here, I'm writing to you in which I stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. So reminder and remember. And what are we to remember? The words, now here's our authoritative Bible, the Holy Prophet speaking of the writers of the Old Testament and a commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by apostles. So we have the Old Testament writers, Jesus Christ, and his apostles who have written to us what's now our Bible. 
These words serve as a reminder. Now, the sheet I gave you, again, like I said, it wasn't so profound as the good use of a concordance. Here, everybody may not have these. They're verses about remind. And we're going to look some of these up. And I want to claim that the reason error and apostasy comes in to the church is because we refuse to allow the Lord to remind us. And part of the reason we don't want to be reminded is that we think that Christianity presents us with an engineering problem. And that what would be far more interesting is how to. I've claimed in many places that when I was at seminary and the whole seminary went from Christian theology to marriage and family therapy, it was a symptom of a larger problem that we don't really believe the eternal truths that are revealed from which we gain a theology are going to benefit us, but we do believe the human wisdom in regard to such things as marriage and family therapy will benefit us. And so we put all of our investment into human wisdom. The result of that after a few years was that the students were theologically ignorant and they had to dumb down the classes just to make it possible for the students to be in them. I was in one class studying the book of Acts. This one young lady asked me to explain a few things from Acts. And she said, well, I've never read Acts. Somebody in their 30s. Never read Acts. Well, what are you studying? Marriage and family therapy. The book of Acts doesn't seem pertinent to that, does it? But in a lot of ways, it really is. Now, I've read here from 2 Peter 3. Now, Peter had already talked about reminding the church in chapter 1. And I was going to go there now, but I'm not because Eric is preaching on it. I got a little preview of his sermon. He has a slide on the passage in 2 Peter 1 about stirring him up by way of reminder. The claim there, we just did this on the radio, by the way. I edited it. It'll come up here in a few weeks. Is that Christian spiritual growth happens because of being reminded. Why do we need to be reminded? Because we forget. Why do we forget? Because we are inclined to listen to the lies of Satan in this world and everything around us is telling us to forget. Everything around us makes it seem impertinent what God has revealed. Now, three pages here of the passages and a lot of the reminder under the Old Covenant had to do with the Exodus event. So if you want to look at Exodus 13, 3. Brian, are you loaded for bear with that mic over there? All right. Why don't people volunteer? Uh, Who wants to read a verse? Okay, Numbers 15, 39. For Daniel, who else wants to read a verse? Paul, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 10. Okay, Mike. No, I've already given that one out. Uh, 
I don't want to do all of these. How about Deuteronomy 8.14? And while you're at it, read 8.18. Okay. And anybody else? Diane? Deuteronomy 9.7. Nancy? Or excuse me, yeah, 9.7. Let's go into another part of the Old Testament here. Look at all of these. Oh, we got lots of them. Isn't that amazing? We could just go around. Let's wake up. Okay, this is it. Uh, why don't we... Well, that's okay. Yeah, you can read them off the sheet. Or out of your... You may have a different translation. Nancy, if you could do Isaiah 46, 8 through 9. Let's stop there, and then I want to, you know, maybe then say why this is so important. And you, I'm hoping just the preponderance, just look at this. Wow. Why isn't this emphasized? Why do we think it's not even important? Why, do, As I said last week, why does Rick Warren say we don't even need a Bible study? We're not doing enough now. He has no place whatsoever for remembering what God did. It's not even on the docket. Okay. You're going to have to remind me who, uh, Daniel, you had the first one. And uh, here comes the, no, not Paul, Daniel up here. Thanks for making the center aisle. Make sure it's good and green. (laughs) You were inspired, okay? Okay, go ahead, Daniel. Read what verse it is and in the verse. Uh, Numbers 15, 39, and 40. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Okay, so there were things instituted under the old covenant designed so that they would remember and not just follow their own heart and mind. Jeremiah talks about prophets who prophesy from their own imagination. Who's next, Paul? Go ahead. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Okay, so not only were the wilderness wanderers to remember the Exodus, they were to teach this to their children, which they do whenever there's a Passover to this very day. Who else? Mike had had a verse, I think. Or two. Yeah. Not like he gets any during the week carrying yeah, mail, right? right? That's right. Deuteronomy 8.14. Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Remember God, and don't think you did it yourself, is what it's saying here. Don't forget, but remember. And then Diane had, had a verse, and then Nancy. This is just sort of an overview of, of the many that are here. 
Okay, Diane. This is Deuteronomy 9, 7 out of the Holman Christian Standard. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God in the wilderness. You have been rebelling against the Lord from the day you left the land of Egypt until you reached this place. Okay, so you forget and you rebel. Go ahead, uh, Nancy. Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. 46.9, remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Okay, so remember the uh, former things. That was in Isaiah. Now, what's the New Testament equivalent of this? We're, We're looking at one right here. Peter didn't think, you know, we already covered this. Let's go on to something more interesting. Or how about this? I've heard this for 30 years. We're tired of all this. Don't you have something more practical? What's more practical than the gospel? That's a lie. That if we ignore the gospel and hear nothing of God's word, but we have a clever engineer type teacher to give us steps to be successful in life, that would be more practical. I don't believe that. There's nothing more practical than remembering what God did. Now, as you saw from some of these verses, and there are many more, there are many more that we that you can take home with you and meditate on and think about and apply to your life to remember. Now, in their case, they're remembering the Exodus. What is it that we are remembering? What about do this in remembrance of me when Jesus says that? We're remembering what God did for us in Christ. And so in Acts 2.42, which we'll get, we will get back to, by the way, they gathered to remember the Christ, what Christ did and to break bread and sit under the teaching of his apostles, as it says right here. So this is emphasized. And to uh, pray and fellowship And they were gathered based on what the Lord did in Christ. And the absurdity, it seems, in the mind of modern readers, oh, we don't need that. We already know it. We already know it. We progress, we think. Okay, that was the ABC. Now let's go to D, E, F, G, and something else. But that's not how the apostles saw it. They kept reminding us of the same thing. And if we get tired of hearing the gospel, isn't that a symptom of spiritual malaise? To be tired of hearing the gospel? I don't want to hear that. Think, think of something else. Wow. Now, did they actually forget? Now, if you look at some of these, let me see if I can find some for me to read. Page two here. We have Judges. Let me do it. Judges 8, 33 and 34. It's on your sheets. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They didn't remember. It just happened that God had delivered them through Gideon. No, we don't remember that. 
Bale, now there, now we got something going for us. Well, what did Bale had to offer? Well, a tangible, feminine, earthy. And so in recent years, particularly starting in the 90s, there's been a conscience and purposeful turn toward the sort of pagan worship that they had under back in those days right within the church. And I've written some articles on that that have published some on CIC and some under the scholarly about the feminist movement saying the problem we have in Christianity is that we have a male, angry, fire god who breathes out fire from heaven and threatens us. And that causes all sorts of abuse. And they go through, you know, the Salem witch trials and then on back to uh, the Inquisition. And in their way of thinking, it's all caused by thinking we have God the Father, who's ultimately the judge of all. And that that's a wicked and abusive doctrine. So the antidote to this male transcendent fire god from heaven is a warm, fuzzy earth goddess who's very non-threatening. It makes us all feel welcome and nurtured. Men are not good nurturers, but women are, so we need a goddess who will nurture, so they say. Now, studying the history of the church would show that women who managed to gain that kind of power have been just as vicious in slaughtering people like Bloody Mary did, if you want to read that sorry era in history, slaughtering people in the name of God just as well as men. What we have is people, whether male or female, who are cut loose from the authority of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the God of the Bible does put out a universal call for all to come and find forgiveness of sins. But so it went in... So it was in the popular theology. So we have a neo-pagan theology. So it's, it's enticing. Paganism has no moral prescriptions, per se. There's no limits to the practices of paganism. The only limit is the imagination of man. I'm working on an outline for an article on this, on, on neo-paganism, I'll just tell you right up front the basic thing, and then you can, I'm certainly open to feedback. It's easier to find what's not pagan than to define what is pagan. Because what is pagan has no boundaries and has no restraint. It can be anything. What's not pagan is what God has said. God speaking, as it says right here, holy prophets, commandments of the Lord spoken by the apostles. In Genesis, you have a biblical world view. God created male and female in his image and spoke to them and dealt with them as rational beings who could understand God's moral law. So you have a transcendent God who creates humans in God's image and who speaks. So if you look at Schaefer's trilogy, Escape from Reason, the God who was there, and he is there, and he's not silent. You have the groundwork in Schaefer's ministry of a biblical worldview. 
God isn't silent. Now, all you have to do to create pagans is to silence God. And what was it that Satan first did to accomplish that goal? Has God said? The first thing Satan did was question the God, the God who speaks. I've said elsewhere, and I'll say it again, if you want to understand the book of Job, the material about God in chapter 1 is written from the perspective of the omniscient narrator, if you want to use theological jargon. In other words, we get to see behind the scenes, the sons of God, Satan, and what's going on on the scene Job wasn't privy to what exactly God said. Then Job and his comforters are trying to understand God's ways without any particular revelation from God. They were somewhat influenced by some kind of knowledge of God, but it was faint, and it wasn't clear. And so they were functional pagans. There were chapter after chapter after chapter. Had God not showed up on the scene, it could have gone on ad infinitum, right? They never would figure out. But when God did come and speak, then they no longer needed to be pagan. God had spoken, and Job understood that and was able to articulate what God said. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, today... We have before us what God said. We have no good reason to be pagan. We know what practices God's ordained that are means of grace because they are commands of God, there's promises, and they're accessible to all Christians. I submit to you that churches that build labyrinths in their property are pagan because they are forgetting the Lord and looking to the warm fuzzy universe to take care of them Eric now when I go towards your house you get up off of uh, highway 7 there's a church with a big have you seen that they've got a labyrinth, uh, a labyrinth that they built in the back with a bunch of piles of rocks Oh, yeah, they got that, too. They're very, but see, they don't have any word from God, so they have everything pagan. I went around that whole neighborhood, and there's church after church, and then there's the Immaculate Heart of Mary. When Christ only has the Immaculate Heart, that's right down the street. Um, over on Minicom, we got all these gay flags flying, and, and then they got the gay uh, um, tabernacle choir playing on 101. It's amazing over there. Yeah, so now that we don't know what God said, we have anything and everything. And if you don't endorse anything and everything, then there's something wrong with you. Do you see what the problem is? The labyrinth, the get back in touch with nature type movement, imminence at the expense of any kind of a transcendent God who speaks. So the reason... The teaching of the word of God is a primary means of grace. It's our means to not forget. And we have no apology for preaching the gospel 
every Sunday. We have no apology for teaching the word of God every Sunday. We have no apology for calling you to remember things that you already know. Because that God uses to stir us up. That's what it says here. Remember, stirring up your sincere mind. What happens when these things are taken off the table? Paganism comes in. So, back to my article. It's easier to define what's not pagan. God has spoken. What is pagan? Everything else. And it can be literally anything and everything. About the time you make a a catalog of neo-pagan practices... It's obsolete because they thought of new ones. Channeling, you know, 30 years ago was channeling in crystals. Now it's the labyrinth. I saw a thing in the Star and Trib. There's a couple that had this beautiful garden in the backyard. They'd built a labyrinth, and it makes them feel peaceful. You don't know what God says about having peace with God, but you feel peaceful when you have this little pattern of stones in the backyard. That's it. It's anything. Now, historically, has paganism been beneficent and kind and peaceful? Oh, no. Neo-pagans slaughter people on the left and on the right. Today, through abortion, they slaughter away. They have no problem slaughtering people. Humans have no particular value because they reject that humans have any Uh, ontological status that's superior to that of animals. So in California, they're having a drought. They have fields that could be, that are like the breadbasket of California to feed humans, divert the water to a few fish. Because the fish have just as important a status as the human beings because they reject what God said, that humans are created in God's image. You throw that out, And then human beings are the problem. And there's no absurdity we won't believe. They're still teaching global warming. No matter how much we freeze, there's no science to it. There's no evidence to it. The high priests of guilt are piling us with guilt. You heat your house, you're guilty. You drive your car, you're guilty. You breathe the air, you're guilty. Guilt, 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 guilt. Well, how do we get rid of it? Where's forgiveness? Oh, there's no, there's carbon offsets you could buy. If you're rich, you can get rid of some of your guilt, but we're going to keep you dangling over the pit of guilt because then you are forced to vote for us, listen to us, and you can feel a little better if you're a true believer. And if you are a denier, then you're evil and wicked in the nth degree. There you go. That's, I'm telling you, it's easier to find what's not pagan. What is pagan is everything around us. Paul. Uh, the Christian church this day obviously has uh, memory issues. So to define what reminder means, I just suggest something. I wonder if you would kind of correct it or do whatever. Memory, uh, to remember, would be to going back to the source or participate in what the source is all about and purposely doing that. Yeah, or to have something defined by God that defines our identity. If you look at these passages, see, the, see all these passages? There's no Israelite that does remember 
whose identity wouldn't be defined by the Exodus event. Remember that God defeated Egypt. Remember that God brought you to himself with a mighty hand. Remember that God spoke on Mount Sinai. Remember that God provided the manna. Remember, remember, remember. For us, it's remembering that Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Remember that he was raised on the third day. And it defines who we are. And we claim these things are objective, sober history. Not mythological ideas. They're not having the same status as the mythology of the pagans, but actual events in history before witnesses. If we believe, if we hope in Christ in this life only, says Paul, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. We're people of history, people of objectivity, people defined by the work of Christ. And we must remember. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it shows us that what Christ did is the new covenant equivalent, but more than an equivalent, Build, building upon the Exodus event is how we're brought out of Egypt, brought to God, and defined as a covenant people. Thus, we have the new covenant. So there it is. In Deuteronomy 16:3, I have this one, so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt when ordained ministers don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, something I ran into when, before I became a Christian, we have an absurdity, a travesty, apostasy. I would say it'd be better to never, ever preach a single sermon the rest of your life than to deny the resurrection of Christ. Because now you're denying that Christianity has anything. What good is Christianity when it's just another version of neo-paganism? They don't need us. They don't need churches for labyrinths and um, prayer shawls and mantras and so on and so forth. They don't need Christianity for that. Because we're the only ones that have the words of God. That's why we're here. That's what defines us. Everything else is pagan. Now, it talks about the mockers. So, dear brothers and sisters, I hope you realize we are in such a minority that we shall be mocked for believing that God has spoken. We absolutely will be scoffed and mocked as idiots and fools. But we must remember. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, as we'll see in the next passage, uh, 
here in, in 2 Peter 3, what they're missing is the flood, right? Because, well, let's go to the next one and I'll back up again. For when they maintains this, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so the flood, the mockers ignore the flood. And ignoring the biblical teaching about the historicity of the flood, they say everything's the same as it was all the way back to creation. Not true. There was a flood, and according to Genesis 6, things were different. They were horribly different, and that's what invoked the judgment of God. And so that's why they mock. They don't listen to the word of God. And it doesn't all continue as it was. But see, people can't believe that was ever any different. They cannot believe it. They can't believe that God's actually going to destroy this world through fire. If you're one of these neo-pagan earth worshipers, you're aghast at this. And that's why the eco-feminists say, see this evil male fire god is threatening us. Is he? Yes. <laughs> He's not evil, but he is threatening us. Uh, yeah, somebody bring the mic to Eric. Make sure it's turned on good and solid green. We ran into that so much over at the seminary, the feminism. They just bristled at anything like what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, Bob, thanks for getting into this. Um, you know, talking about having just the word of God that separates us from paganism. What's interesting is when you're talking about Noah, if everyone turns your Bible to Hebrews 11, 11 verse 7. This is, remember, the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter. And in Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. And I won't go on. The big issue there is there was nothing seen. There was nothing to tip off about this judgment that was to come. All he had was what? The word of God. Yeah. Hey, in Christianity, what do we have in this world? We only have the word of God. There's no signs. Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given it except what? The sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection of Christ. Well, if they deny that, that's in the word of God. They're not going to have any other evidence. Bob is saying here, that's what we have. And we warn the world, not through saying, look to that sign or look to this sign. But it's the word of God itself. That's what we have. That's what separates us from paganism. So thank, thank you, Bob, for getting into this. Well, here is our role in this world. I think you f- hope you find it important for sure. There's a little bit of excitement. Yeah, uh, Brian. <clears throat> Maybe you can comment on this, Bob. When you see like these barnacles and stuff. 
50-60% of so-called Christian pastors and, and, and members of uh, Christian churches don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe this, that, and the other thing. The mockers, it seems, are in the church. Okay. Are not going to be, you know, we got the hidden church, but yet these mockers and the people that won't be mocking are going to be people right in, the, in, in what they call the church. Yeah, okay, very good comment, uh, Brian, about the mockers being in the church. I've written articles about this over since 1992, and I'm, I'll probably, when I write this new one, just bring quotes from older articles and put it all in one place. One of the more profound examples of neo-paganism we've had in the last 150 years was Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany and Hitler was a committed neo-pagan. And the main Nazi philosopher was Martin Heidegger. Heidegger was the first one to call himself postmodern. The Nazi religion was to be committed to, the, to nature and to imminence at the expense of transcendence. And one of the reasons for Hitler's killing the Jews was that he found them to be intractable. They were people of the book. They were the people who, whose practices reminded them that God had spoken the Ten Commandments the Passover, whatever. They have a transcendent God who transcends the creation. So he kills the Jews. Now what do you do about the Christians? Because they have the same worldview as the Jews. Well, he found that through his propaganda machine, it was very easy to win the Christians over to his neo-pagan religion. And so most of the church just knuckled under and supported Nazism, neo-paganism, and Hitler. Now, the big problem was, and the Jews were a, a, a huge amount of people compared to how many Christians there were who wouldn't go neo-pagan. Now, there also existed in Nazi Germany the confessing church, as they used to call themselves, or the confessing Christians. The example would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And ultimately, many of them were killed along with the Jews because they also were intractable. Why? Because they believed that God had spoken and there was a transcendent God beyond creation who is a giver of moral law, that humans are created in God's image, therefore human life is valuable. That wasn't how the postmodern nature-worshipping Nazis saw it. Now, there's a book by Jean Edward Veith on this. It's excellent, and I quote it a lot in my article. So we live in a day in which neo-paganism, like it did in the time of Hitler, reigns supreme, and that those who are intractable are hated by the rest of the culture, intimidated in the seminaries, and not considered people worthy of being taken seriously. 
In the meantime, human life is devalued. Unborn babies are murdered. The moral of law, law of God is flaunted. Good is evil, evil is good. And we have around us a whole milieu of scoffers. This isn't caused by science. This isn't caused by objectively looking at the universe God created from a Christian perspective. It's caused by rejecting the word of God and going by everything else. So as I said earlier, as I write my article, what's not pagan is easier to define. Then what is pagan is everything else. Now, Christian teachers and preachers and pastors listen carefully. If we don't want congregations to be influenced by pagan belief and pagan practices, we must teach the word of God accurately according to the author's intent and make applications and and describe implications that necessarily follow from the text. And if we do that, though, the church growth experts would mock that. And there's little support for it amongst our peers. We believe that God will honor that and sanctify his people. And the means by which we enter the Christian life by grace through faith is how we proceed and that God will use that. And whether people like it or not, it's our bounding moral obligation to teach God's word forthrightly so that we might remember. Now notice the content of their mocking. Where is, think about that. Where is, where is the promise? Now remember means of grace, command of God, the promise of God, and accessibility, how we come to God on his terms. We have promises that we believe. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. There's a promise of his coming. Do you think we ought to give up on that promise because it hasn't happened yet? The Old Testament saints had the promise of the coming of Messiah that went on fulfilled for thousands of years. If you go back to Abraham, you think they should have gave up? Well, they did, didn't they? Let me show you some verses where the where is is used as a means of mocking. Jeremiah 17, 15. Jeremiah 17, 15. Look, they keep saying to me, where is the word of God? Let it come now. Remember when they brought a scroll of the writings of the prophet to the king? What did he do? You got it right. Jim Palmer says, throw it in the fire. Cut it up and burn it. They so despised the word of God because they wanted to be pagan. If you think we can fill the pulpit with poetry and and nice sayings and soliloquies and human wisdom and feel-good stuff and, and the people don't become pagan, you believe a lie. The thing that keeps us from being pagan is the clear teaching of God's word. Where is the word of the Lord? 
Joel 2.17. Joel 2.17, I'll read it to you. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Notice that same thing we have here. Where is? Where is? Where's the promise of his coming? Where's the God of creation? And thus they mock. Malachi 2.17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how we've wearied him. In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or, quote, where is the God of justice? This is what God's people are saying. Where is the God of justice? This doesn't seem fair. Malachi 2.17. So the claim here is there's been no cosmological changes I have another slide here. Escapes their notice. And what they don't believe is the Noatic flood. So the word of God and what it tells us about the flood and what happened at the time of Noah, which I've been teaching on, and I know there are Christians who don't like what it says in Genesis 6, but it still says it. And it's still pertinent. Uh, Thomas Schreiner says this about the passage before us. He says, the view with the least problems is that the plural relative pronoun refers to water and to the word of God, both of which are mentioned in verse 5. Peter wants to emphasize that the very same agents that brought order to the world, water and God's word, you can read that in Genesis 1, were also responsible for its destruction. The flood, according to Peter was not merely a natural disaster. It was God's judgment on the world appointed by his word and affected through water. Now we know God will intervene again the next time through fire. I was talking a little earlier about global warming or now it's called climate change. Notice how in the pagan way of thinking, humans are always the problem. Rather than humans bearing the image of God and having meaning because of being image bearers of God, humans become no different than any other part of the creation. And therefore, to be killed, to kill millions of humans is meaningless. And so you see pagans, Soviet Russia, um, Nazi Germany, Southeastern communism and Laos and Vietnam, they kill millions. They don't believe, they're just stomping out the image of God. Okay, and so not believing what God said, we believe lies and absurdities. And so by defining humans as the problem, in other words, whatever is going on in climate that we have no control over, no, we're guilty sinners, well, then that opens the door for whatever anybody wants to do to us the guilty sinners. Let's get rid of the humans and we won't have this problem. Everything will exist in harmony. And they refuse to learn what they're supposed to learn from climate-oriented 
disasters. If you want to turn, that's found in Luke 13. Luke 13, right at the beginning. Let's see what God says. There were some people asking about some people who had been murdered. Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell Excuse me, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. It talks about future judgment. Uh, that was in Luke 13, 2, 3, 4, thereabouts. 2 through 5. Now, so we have a hurricane that hits somewhere. Do you think the people who died in the hurricane are worse sinners than everybody else? No, unless you repent, that's the Lord's message. But we don't want to preach that. So we assume that humans driving their cars are the cause of everything. And we just accumulate more guilt. And we have guilt that it, of which it is impossible to repent of. What we really need to repent of is mocking God. And that we won't. Yes. Rich. I'm just thinking about a couple of things I've heard in Christian Christianese that reminds me of what you're talking about, uh, paganism. And one thing is just that Malachi verse, really something hit me really hard. It says, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Man, how about the four spiritual laws? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, how, about, how about Rick Warren? Noah made God smile. <laughs> right, right. And another thing I heard from a pastor, he said this from the pulpit, and the girls can back me up on this. This pastor said, doctrine's not important. What's important is unity. And, and what we're getting here is, is pa- that's blunt paganism. That's blunt paganism. Let's, yeah, let's disavow what God has said. an excuse not to teach the truth. Let's disavow what God says. So let's, let's br- build this thing, this build megachurch, yeah. you know, around unity, whatever when, feels good. By the way, when we get, as I'm teaching means of grace, when we get to the word of God as the primary means of grace, I want to talk about that. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. That word is truth. It's in the same prayer about unity. And Eric and I, on our radio show, we quote Philippians 127, every, every single one. Unity comes from striving together for the faith of the gospel. But God, if God has said nothing in particular, we have no ground for Christian unity. Every person does what's right in their own eyes. Look at the next passage. Now we want to look at God's patience. Patience, excuse me. 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, I have up on the screen. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is just patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, here we have the reason for a delay that creates the ground for mockers to mock. And the utter irony that is revealed in this, 
is that if the mockers got their way, they'd be burned up right now. They're literally demanding their own destruction. I remember seeing Norm Geisler in a debate somebody who, on the issue of the problem of evil. This goes back to the 80s. And the person who was on the other side of the debate was saying, well, if God's all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants, and if he's loving, he'll do what's right, so therefore he'll get rid of evil. All right? So why doesn't God get rid of evil? Well, he obviously doesn't, so therefore there's no God. Or God isn't like us theists thought he was. Well, here's the problem. If humans are wicked sinners... God can very well get rid of evil, but then he'd also get rid of all those wicked sinners. And the people that are debating this are using the fact that they're not in hell right now as proof that God doesn't exist. Where the real lesson isn't that God doesn't exist, it's God's love and patience is revealed. Okay? And the irony is unbelievable, but it's, it's true. How is God so patient as the mocking goes on? Now, we know that God won't again destroy the world through water. That's revealed in Genesis nine fifteen to 17. And it talks about the covenant. And this particular covenant is with all flesh, the bow in the cloud, is a sign of the Noahic covenant that God will not again destroy the world with a flood. Now we know the heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. Now there's a theological issue here about who you is, what wishing means, and who to whom it applies. And here we are out of time. I escaped that problem. <laughs> well, let me say this. However you understand this verse, God is a patient and loving God calling all to repent. We saw that in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And there's certain truths that we can affirm however we want to try to understand this passage the, the truths don't change the universal call is true and that God will keep all of his elect is also true so we'll talk about that in two weeks let's pray Heavenly Father thank you for your kindness and mercy that you show to us as you endure the mockery of unbelief we pray that you would use means of grace to cleanse us from unbelief in our own hearts, that we might believe you and therefore be salt and light in the midst of a pagan world that thinks we're foolish for our belief. But we know that your word is true and that you cannot fail. Thank you, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.